So he would get me out of bed by saying Rouse. What did my dad? Rouse or Schnell. Welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast on Second World War Prisoner War Escapes. Hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And today we're actually enjoyed by another guest, actually. And this is Midge Gillis, who's written a fabulous book on life as a prisoner of war, which is entitled The Barbed Wire University. So I'm really keen to know all about this. So Midge, what brought you into this? Why did you get into talking about this particular subject sure so my I grew up knowing that my dad had been a prisoner of war I never quite knew what that meant I just knew it had been a really significant part of his life and I remember when I went off to university my mum would pack up what both my parents called my red cross parcel and it was a, a box with chocolate brownies in it and coffee and cheese and it had some kind of mystical power to it. And I remember them both talking as if, as long as I had this, everything was going to be all right. Um, and then when I started to do the research, of course, I realised that my dad had received Red Cross parcels. And that's why it had been so important to him. But I didn't really know. I mean, it's always the, the case, isn't it, that you never ask your, your mom and dad the questions you wish you had. But I was very interested in this idea of him being a prisoner of war. And I remember watching The Great Escape with him, which, of course, we loved and called it as well. Well, but they were family entertainment. So yeah, so you said that's really interesting, actually, over watching the the war films at the time. How did your dad, being in mind he'd been there during the war, what did he think to those remakes of Prisoner of War stories? Because there obviously wasn't a huge number of Prisoner of War related items in the general domain back in the 50s and 60s. So did he take well to these Hollywood versions of wartime escapes? I think he viewed them as pure fantasy. So they were just family entertainment. And it was only when we saw the newsreel of the RAF pilots who were captured in the Iraq war, if you remember. And one of them had obviously been battered. And my dad was really, really upset by that. And I think that that rang true with him in a way that those kind of Hollywood movies didn't. And that gave me the, the kind of interest in trying to find out a bit more about his life. And my father did escape in a very dull kind of way. I know your whole no. podcast is about escapes. No, I don't think any any escape could be classed as dull. In well, you, you know, he didn't build a glider or anything like that or dress up in, you know, as a woman or anything like that. But uh, shall I tell you how he escaped? Yeah, yeah. yeah please do. So um, I, I think this lots of people did this. So it was towards the what was the end of the war and he um, they were being moved from one camp to another um, and he was so thin he thought that he was going to die if he didn't try and escape and I remember thinking you've exaggerated that but looking at the pictures of people at that stage in the war they looked just terrible and so he decided with another mate that when they were being marched from one camp to another they would both fall into the side of the road into a kind of a ditch and wait until the the rest of the soldiers had passed by and the other guy chickened out he decided not to go so my dad was lying there and then he was on the run for quite a long time so the Polish resistance helped him gave him false papers and clothes to wear he wasn't allowed to talk which must have been a real challenge for my dad because he was very chatty (laughs) 
And he ended up in a, a wood with lots of displaced people. And then eventually, it's very sweet because when I was researching his story, I came across some letters from some Polish people he got in touch with who'd helped him after the war. And they said that he put his ear to the ground and said, I can hear tanks and they're definitely allied tanks. And that's my dad all over <laughs> being very positive. You know, I mean, I, I don't think you probably can tell what kind of tank it was. And then this tank, sure enough, did arrive. And again, I've heard this story over and over again from different POW accounts. The top flew off and the guy jumped out. My dad had been made to go forward and say, I'm a jock, I'm a jock, and waved his hands in front of the tank. The guy who came out of the tank said, what the F are you doing here? Um, and then my dad was taken away and deloused and debriefed and eventually sent home, eventually got back to um, Scotland, where he was from, Dumbarton. My granddad met him on the station, walked straight past him because he was so changed and so thin because of oh. the whole experience. Which camps had he been in? So he was captured in Italy, okay. and then he was taken up to Germany and, and Poland. So he was in 357 and 4B, so very big camps. Mm-hmm. Um, he was in the Scots Guards, 1st Battalion. And a fine regiment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, he was always very proud of that mm-hmm. and went to reunions, Scots Guards reunions and POW um, reunions as well and kept in touch with those people but very rarely spoke about what he'd seen and typically mostly spoke to my husband about the war, okay. I think because he felt that it was the kind of thing that you spoke to a man about, not your daughter. And then towards the end of his life, I got his, his war records and found out a bit more about where he'd been and what had happened. And I found a certificate of him playing in a rugby team in one of the camps. Okay. And it's really funny because they misspelt his surname. Okay. You'd have thought with time on their hands, they would have got that right. <laughs> but it's very beautifully done. So it's, again, an example of the kind of skills that they learned in the camps. So it's lovely calligraphy mm-hmm. and lovely colours in it as well. Was it that then, so looking at your dad's story, was that what you wanted to know was what life was like in the camp? What kept him entertained? What kept him motivated? What kept him inspired to keep going through all this captivity? Yeah, I suppose so. And also it did have an effect on my life because while he was inside, he was engaged to someone else and he got sent a Dear John letter. <laughs> so, and I, I found this Sadly out Sadly not unknown. <laughs> no. So I might have been someone else. Mm. So he got this letter from th- this woman and he was made by the other POWs to sit down and write a letter saying, well, it would never have worked out. I'm really, this is a really good idea that you decided to do this. And he was also uh, made to pin the Dear John letter on the, the hut notice board so that everyone knew what had happened, which is quite a brutal way of dealing with with something that must have been really tough you know if that's the only thing that's keeping you going yeah I mean that is that is really quite something uh, yeah to go through because I mean I imagine in that environment he's obviously bonded very much with his roommates and his whether he had people that he was caught with that were still there I mean they would have had affiliations and groups you'd have thought there'd be an awful lot of support the moral support amongst prisoners was that a particularly strong bond that lasted through the rest of their time I mean you say you went to prisoner war reunions was it still that strong bond between people yeah I think it definitely was and I think if you well it's, it's true of any kind of military experience in war I think if you see dreadful things are there only certain people that you can perhaps talk about those 
instances with or, or not have to talk or explain them just know that you've been through the same thing and I think that was very important to him and he still felt very guilty at the end of his life at, at things he'd done uh, so he had to be in charge of d- dividing up the bread that they got in their huts so it was a very basic you know very dense German bread and they used to take it in turns as to the slice of the bread that they got and so uh, I think the crust was the, the bit you didn't want but you took it in turns and one guy said no no this is my turn to have the best bit and dad got him by the neck and said he very nearly killed him and if someone hadn't pulled him off that um, that poor man then that might have happened and I think he felt very ashamed that he'd his emotions had run away with him and I, I think everyone else was there to try and get you through and to see if you were on the edge perhaps there's um, lots of really interesting examples of people going a bit kind of stir crazy and in one of the camps there was a famous week called crazy week and it must have been very interesting for the german guards because they pretended that a train had turned up they queued up for the train they held taxis they had imaginary dogs and they all went a bit kind of loopy um, and then everything went back to normal Um, And I think part of the fun in that was thinking we can lose it for a while, but also we are really confusing the guards who don't quite know how to deal with this. So I think the psychology of that is is fascinating. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, that's the thing. I mean, all these guys have gone through military training, so they know that they have to pull together and work together in order to get through their ordeal, which, of course, I mean, I'm making a presumption here, but later on in the war I imagine some information was coming through so they could get an idea of which way the war was going but obviously Poland awful long way from the fighting it's a very long way I know they they would have probably realized all the allies had to do was get to Berlin but still you've got the Russians coming from the east and the the other allies coming from the from the from the west and you know the stress on who's going to get there first when's it going to be have we got to get through another winter all of that must have really played on these guys yes yes and I think it also depended on how you how you became a a POW so my my dad had been fighting in North Africa he was lucky in a sense that he wasn't captured in 1940 for example at the evacuation of Dunkirk and I think that feeling that yeah they they did know um, a lot about what was going on but you don't know what's going to happen at the end of the war and how it's going to end and who's you know if the Russians turn up is that you know is that preferable if you were in the RAF you might have been having a nice kind of breakfast in in Blighty and then end up in a POW camp at the end of the day you might you might you know be attacked by people local people in Germany when you arrive you've got that kind of trauma so it's, it's definitely lots of different experiences of captivity which is really what I think interested me in uh, his experience and I always wanted to write about um, what had happened to him but it was only when an editor said can you write about what it's really like to be a POW not about all the kind of great escapes because that's in a way a minority what was it like day in and day out? I wanted to pick up on that point actually because so much of our knowledge of prisoner of war narrative stems from the escape narrative of which actually it's a very small representation of the overall not just the overall narrative but of the overall life it's it's something like only 10% of an entire camp were ever involved in escape at all and only 10% of them were involved in the escape itself so you you had people who were involved in escaping but were not necessarily trying to get out so you're actually talking about only about 1% of the prisoner of war population who were involved in escape and then from that 1% only a very few actually went on to write about it, which in turn led to the films. And as I say, that's the basis of our knowledge of prisoners of war is based upon this very small number of people who happen to be involved in one aspect of life in the prisoner of war camp. 
obviously this is a podcast about escape so we're thrilled that these people have participated in, in this activity but I think why we were so keen to speak to you is to broaden that knowledge beyond just the escapes but actually to understand what life as a POW was, was like and in some ways what it was they were escaping from. Mm, yeah I think that's that's a really there's lots of really good points in there and particularly what you're saying about you know you might be involved in an escape in, a, in quite a kind of loose sense so what I'm really interested in is creativity mm-hmm. and how maybe in, in a kind of counterintuitive way being in a camp pushes you to do something that's really creative so for example you might find that you're a really good artist and if you're a good artist Mm. you might be painting portraits as a form of barter for different things for food but also you could be very good at then doctoring a false passport or papers there was an example of an artist who was thought he was painting someone in quite an innocuous way and then discovered that the person was sitting on top of a tunnel so if you've got your subject on top of a tunnel that's really handy Mm -hmm. and all the the costumes you might produce for a performance of a play again can be used for escape a suitcase that might be a prop can also be used in escape the idea of escape is kind of very encouraging for everyone i think in the camp and also what i'm writing about in creativity is the kind of mental escape from and the boredom which was the biggest thing that drove people mad in the camps so really then so your father or any of the other tens or if not hundreds of thousands of of men that ended up being captured so they would have ended up in a camp so camp life would have been what groups of people segregated into huts with an element of communal food or communal recreation what was the sort of structure and how did it how was the camp system generically because I realize there's obviously many different camps and setups but generically how was it sort of set up yeah well it obviously depends on if you're an ordinary soldier or an officer and if you think of the the screen depictions that that gives you some idea so if you think of the, the great escape that's probably the most common form of a pw camp those kind of barracks and the barbed wire um, surroundings and the the cooler and the latrines and all those things and the sick bay and stuff like that but you also had castles and even kind of palaces and officers would be in those often in those more kind of exalted places but equally ordinary soldiers would be in rundown places as well kind of fortresses that were really unpleasant to be in and they would you'd have a, a kind of man of confidence who would be the link between the POWs and the person who was running the camp and then you would divide into smaller groups for food and and then other groups for recreation as well so the idea was to to give the everyone in the camp the chance to support one another in the the most sensible way fantastic so we've seen from some of the earlier escapes that potentially the germans were not necessarily so organized or prepared for taking in large amounts of prisoners of war particularly in the early days of the war 19 39 and early 1940 as the war went on did the germans get more structure to how they formed their camps and processed the people or did it largely stay the same throughout each camp had a a number and then a numeral next to it so it it did become very organized and the whole system of processing uh, people when they were captured and uh, deloused and debriefed and then sent to the camp yeah did emerge but as they had a huge number of POWs to cope with, it, it did become harder. And that you get the sense that a lot of the time the Germans weren't sure actually who was in control, really. And there are stories of a, a German guard, for example, taking a group of prisoners for a swim and he passes out because it's a bit hot. So they just put him in the shade and they go for their swim and come back and pick him up and, and take him home again. So that there's a kind of, you know, there's a, a balance there. And I, I think that's true of any kind of form of captivity. 
So do you generally think that the morale between the prisoners and their guards was actually fairly reasonable? I guess the prisoners had an interest in keeping the guards on their side or friendly to give them a better time or potentially open up opportunity for bribery or help and assistance. But I mean, did you come across cases where things were particularly bad or particularly good? Well, I think um, you'd always get a, a case of knowing who was not a very nice guard and who perhaps might be a bit more sympathetic to you or who could be bribed. And they were equally bored as well. So they would be quite open to having a performance of a play stage because it was entertaining for them and they might bring their families along as well. It's it's not as clear, you know, like, like history, it's not as clear cut as often is depicted on TV or in films. There was probably also an element of a safety issue as well. I mean, you know, you didn't want to rile up a trigger-happy guard. Yeah, and my, my dad always used to say that when Dresden was bombed terribly, the guards came and took the blankets away from their camp. So, that you know, it wasn't always that kind of cosy relationship. Mm-hmm. So sometimes the outside world did intrude. I'm just interested to hear what a normal day would have been like in a prisoner war camp. Talk us through what a normal day would be. Yeah, so you'd wake up in your, your bunk bed and probably wouldn't have slept very well. You would have something really horrible for breakfast, maybe some Azatz coffee, which was disgusting. You might have be able to boil something up on a kettle that you'd made out of a Red Cross tin that had come. Then you'd go out for the, the roll call and you, you might try and annoy the Germans by the person who's been counted once runs to the other end and you can never get the, the number right. Then there would be various duties you had to do, like cleaning the barracks. If you weren't an officer and you had to go to work, you'd have to go and work in the fields or do something like that. But then there would have been recreation time as well, and a lot of it, so a lot of time to fill. And that was filled in all manner of ways. Obviously, there was some time to kill in the afternoon, and you've got men who have gone through huge amounts of training, huge amounts of fighting potentially in lots of high stresses who have now then been put into a, an environment where they've been interrogated and then basically left in a camp with some of their friends so they, they wanted to be creative you've, you've said that that's what really interests you they had some recreation actually i mean what how outlandish did we get on sporting or entertainment or creativeness so anything you could imagine they would try and do so if we think just of sports, they would invent games. So you probably know that in Colditz, there was a particular game that they played, which involved... Stool ball, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. So it had to... It would, I mean, it was a bit like Mornington Crescent. No one quite knew the rules, but it had to kind of bounce off bits of the castle. Okay. Um, and then any other sport you could think of. So even things like ice hockey... So they had the fire pool of water. So when that froze over, you could play ice hockey on that. Netball, football, hockey, absolutely everything, even tobogganing. I think Eric Newby uh, did tobogganing in Italy. And golf is a wonderful thing as well. They had golf? Yeah. A golf course? Yeah. Was it not styled with three? It was, yeah. Yeah, and there's a fantastic account of people playing it. And so again, using the the cans from a Red Cross parcel so uh, that you aimed the ball for. And then people were sent golf clubs through the Red Cross they swept the the bunkers and there's a great scene where someone's obviously really cross because the head of their tomatoes has been locked off by a golf ball and then the Germans thought this is you know this is too much like an escape because you're digging holes and but I just love that idea that you know you can again just escape and and pretend that you're somewhere else all of these create statistics which are wonderful as well Mm -hmm. so you can kind of talk about well that compares with the, the game that I saw in some particular football ground 
and of course they would be professional footballers amongst the POWs as well and you can make endless teams so you could have a team from Yorkshire a town battalion you know it just can go on and on really it's, it takes up a lot of a lot of time the only downside is that you know the danger of being injured and as people became weaker that was a, a problem as well but then endless bands bagpipes were sent out so all was this all through red, red cross provided yes. or did the germans provide any sort of musical equipment or help and assistance with the, these recreational well, activities they did offer there was a case of dramatic makeup for plays being given by the the germans and there was noel coward had a, a one of his plays post-mortem was premiered in an, an off-lag didn't do very well because it was a bit gloomy and they said could they have something that was a bit enlightening benjamin Britten sent over a piece of music and and every time something came over, it had to obviously been looked at. It had to be looked at by the censor to make sure there wasn't any kind of mm-hmm. hidden message in there. They could, using the famous Lagergeld, they could purchase sports equipment, music equipment. Yeah, but I almost think they didn't really need to because no. the Red Cross was amazing at it getting was. anything. You know, or if you'd lost your artificial limb, I think Douglas Bader had mm-hmm. his sent out, or endless books that you could ask for. People studied beekeeping, sat exams, Oxford University sat exams, and they actually thought the papers were better because they didn't have an ac- access to all of the books they would have had at home. And when I was doing the research, because C.S. Lewis marked some of the papers... I remember asking his estate whether I could quote from a, a letter and the email was something like narnia.com and it's the coolest email I've ever wow. I've ever come across. That's very good. So, I mean, there's a few names that you've mentioned there with things. So were there people that we were generally well-known pre-war, post-war, who were in... I know a number of actors who went yeah. on to star in films were obviously in prisoner of war camps i think famous actors as clive dunn donald pleasance you know numerous others that have, that have come up from this but i mean who were the names that people would recognize who had attachments to the prisoner of war camps? Well, well all of those people you've mentioned roy detrice as well she's an amadeus Den Home Elliot, Robert Davies, who is a great on, on TV. But I did speak to Clive Dunn, who was my absolute hero. He said that because he had to work and he had all this kind of pent up anger towards the, the captors that he used to kind of, when he got very frustrated in his role in Dad's Army, that was what he would draw on. He would go back to those moments and that kind of frustration. That's pro- possibly a world exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Butterworth as well who mm. was in the Carry On films. Yeah. He actually went up for a part in the Wooden Horse film and was famously rejected because he didn't look like an athlete. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, and you, you made a comment that uh, a lot of these guys also studied and that C.S. Lewis marked various papers. And so, so was it actually possible that people came back from their time in prisoner of war camps better educated, better qualified than oh, they'd gone in? Oh yeah, definitely. And I think it's also your aspirations are um, raised because you're meeting people from completely different walks of life. So when I was giving a talk about the book, someone came and said, yeah, my dad became an accountant because he started doing exams when he was inside. And there was another lawyer who took his bar exams and was called to the bar in absentia. And his wife took those dinners that you have to take if you want to be a, a barrister. Oh, great. And the, and the exams were set in very um, strict controlled conditions because they didn't want any allegations that it hadn't been as good as it had been mm-hmm. in the UK. So they kind of note the temperature and if there'd been an air raid during it and those kinds of details that all went into the report. Am, am I right in thinking Tolkien also marked some English exams? Yes, that's right. Yes. Uh-huh. You know, obviously, Lord of the Rings is now massive and released post, yes. post-war, but uh, with the films back in the early 2000s, I mean, that's a name that really resonates through the, through the years, I think. Yes. He was back at 
home. So yes. were papers sent from the camp back to home for yes. notable people to mark? Well, and not be n- sent back to the, the camp again, or was it just by chance? That no, Tolkien... no, not notable people. But I mean, he wasn't Don in Oxford, so he, you know, they had to decide whether they were going to allow people in POW camps to sit exams because you know it's obviously not in Oxford, so it's special um, circumstances. And amazing books were were sent out, and books were written in camps as well. So there was a famous mountaineer called Bill Murray who was um, captured in Italy and they had a climbing club so obviously you couldn't go and climb but you had to, to be a member of the club you had to recount your favourite climb in Scotland and then he wrote down about his memories of this and he wrote it sitting in his bunk leaning on his Red Cross box and then the Gestapo confiscated it because they thought that it must be something that was secret I mean I often think when I lose something on my computer just remember it's not been taken by the Gestapo and he wrote it again and said it was much better for a second edit so and and it went on to be a really successful book and I, I nearly made a terrible mistake in the book because they kept talking about canaries and bird seeds and and hiding the bird seeds in the drums of the musical instruments but of course they were talking about the batteries for the illegal radios they had so lots of coded messages were were left in these accounts and letters home as well yeah so speaking of letters we've we've talked about sport we've talked about theater music a wide variety and number of ways that prisoners of war kept themselves amused while in camp of course letters to and from home were a hugely important aspect of their life they often took many weeks if not months to go back and forth yeah so letters were really really important and there were um, lots of probably apocryphal stories about the, the the tactless things that people wrote like you know you must get really have really good beer out in germany they were called mail bag splitters so things that again were making fun of the tactlessness of people at home but i think went to a kind of a deep seated belief that you know what what was your girlfriend or your wife doing at home with all those nice gis who'd suddenly appeared and yeah. there were you stuck a long way from from home yeah and they they were really important links with home and my mum actually wrote to a POW somewhere else so there were people who kind of professionally did that not professionally but you know that was that was their way of being involved and they were given advice by the the Red Cross about how to write to someone in a a POW camp and what not to mention Mm -hmm. really because there's no point in mentioning things that you can't do anything about or that might make someone jealous or worried about what's going on at home. And of course the route for these letters to get them was that all via the Red Cross? I've read before that once you'd been notified that your relative was missing or captured or whatever then further documentation would follow as to how to contact them but was that all channeled through the Red Cross and its enterprise? Yeah but it's interesting well first of all letters took uh, longer to get to you as the war progressed because you know as places became cut off or you moved and you couldn't keep up with the letters but my grandparents actually heard that my dad had so they got a a telegram saying my dad was missing presumed killed in action and then they heard on the Vatican radio that he'd been captured and there were people who would listen in to German radio and just keep a list of any mention of POWs and then track that family down and tell them that there was news my granny also went and had her tea leaves read and luckily the woman said yeah there'll be three people in in peaked caps home within the next month and sure enough there were so you know that's how it worked in Scotland. How and where was he captured? He was captured in Italy um, in February 1944. He was actually hiding in a kind of cellar with some uh, civilians and Germans turned up and he felt that he had to uh, surrender himself because he felt the people he was with were in danger and would have been fired on so Uh he was taken then you know the usual kind of cattle trucks Hmm. um, towards Germany. We've talked a lot about the Red Cross about the role that they played. We have touched upon 
on the Red Cross parcels. They play such a crucial role in, in, in the life of a prisoner of war, but also in the perception of prisoners of war. I mean, they are one of the go-to objects that you think about if you're ever talking about prisoners of war. But what sort of things were generally in the boxes? What sort of role did they play in the life of a POW? They weren't just sustenance. There was almost a me- mental sustenance to them as well as just having a plethora of roles that they played in life. Yeah, so, so you'd have the tins of food and that might vary depending on you had uh, soldiers who were, were Sikhs, for example, then you'd have Indian food that might be in the, the, the parcel, but you might also have tobacco or chocolate and then you'd have comforts, so socks, those kinds of things. And, and when a, a Red Cross parcel arrived, people spoke about it as if it was Christmas. Mm-hmm. You know, this thing is just like coming down on Christmas morning and there it is. And there's one really sad story of this guy who's just waiting for his parcel and waiting and it arrives and he falls off his chair and breaks his leg. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I, I think that does sum up the kind yeah. of, you know, excitement. And then every, absolutely everything in the parcel was used from the string and it would be used to make wigs for performances as well. The tins could be used for absolutely everything. The paper was used and adjust that connection with home as well. The fact that it had come from Britain. So they had to be really creative with anything and everything that came into the camp. How often would, I mean, I guess as the war progressed, as you said, with the letters, deliveries would become more infrequent but I mean what typically would be your weight between Red Cross parcels you're talking a week a month well it did vary a lot so I mean maybe an average might be six weeks although we are talking about life as a prisoner of war in this episode I think it is worth touching upon the role the Red Cross parcels played in escapes here so going back to the point about sustenance the diet that was provided to prisoners of war by the Germans was I've said it before it was enough to keep you alive but not enough to stop you from starving Mm -hmm. it certainly wasn't enough to give you enough energy to engage in escape activities or indeed other activities and that was almost intentional if if you like, you know, they didn't want them to escape, therefore they didn't give them enough calories. Having that source of sustenance, as much as it was spread quite thinly across a period of time, was crucial. But also, you talk about string, you talk about the boxes themselves, the tin cans, things like the string were used in drawing the trolleys through mm. the great the escape, tunnels. the yeah. tunnels in yeah. the great escape, or the the tin cans were used for pumping air along the tunnels, or and not just in tunnel escapes, they'd be used in other forms of escape as well. But I think it is worth drawing that connection from the Red Cross parcels back to the escapes themselves yeah and and again drawing on the ingenuity of all the pow's you've Mm. got so the engineers that can make those kinds of things with very basic equipment is astonishing absolutely and they would also stick the labels from the tins into their log books as well so because again that was kind of a a link with home Mm. and they would have endless discussions about food which seems torturous to me you know what was your favorite meal if you could go to a restaurant which one would you go to there was lots of storytelling going on as well when you say so the Red Cross parcels were linked to home and obviously they had letters from home, but was it possible for families to send items to enhance the package that was being received out there? So I mean, could a wife or a girlfriend at home send socks or extra goods or books in particular that might be of interest? Could it, could it be bulked out by families? I think that was a different way of sending things because you had to be so careful because if, if the Germans found that you were breaking the rules, then that would be the end of the system. And also the... The Red Cross parcel with the food in was designed for the maximum 
nutritional input. So other things would have gone in other parcels. I think I'm right in saying that family parcels were sent through the government channels. That sounds right, yeah. Uh, so, but again, there was very, very strict limitations on what could be sent, when it could be sent, how often it could be sent, that sort of thing. Families, of course, tried to get around it, as, as is their want and habit, but I think it went through the UK government, who then passed it on to the protecting powers, not necessarily the Red Cross, but actually through Switzerland, I mm-hmm. think, or Sweden. And these were passed on and then filtered throughout the camps accordingly. I think what I was trying to look at is to see like the level of camaraderie between people that if they did receive stuff from home that it was shared amongst their immediate friends or whether it was certain items that was kept were they all there to look after each other as well and things like that yeah well and also putting things aside for escapes as well which i think must have taken a huge amount of willpower to try and keep something to get someone started if they are going to try and escape so yeah so we mentioned the rules and that everything had to be strictly adhered to so Mm. there was obviously a punishment system within the camp and you mentioned the cooler but i mean what what typically was the rules that they had to live their life by every day well i suppose you've got the military rules to begin with haven't you so you've got the rules within the, the british army or the ref that was one way of kind of keeping the pow's on the kind of straight and narrow but then you've got what the germans think you should be doing as well yeah you're certainly right that the military structure was maintained within the hierarchy of a prisoner war camp i mean you had certainly in the officers camp you had the senior british officer or the senior american officer and so on and so forth and quite often they would be very high ranking slightly different within the junior ranks camps because they you you mentioned earlier they they would vote on a man of confidence which was someone that was widely trusted by the majority of the population of a camp. So rather than it being the most senior sergeant, for example, or or something like that, they would tend to vote on someone that was widely trusted and that would then be the go-between between themselves and the hierarchy of the camp and often someone who spoke german that could be mm-hmm. really helpful because then you could negotiate with the germans as well so that was an, another thing that might mm-hmm. enter the mix when you're looking for that man of confidence mm-hmm. equally on, on the flip side goombating was a very popular pastime i think it's fair to say again it seems to tie in closely with escape perhaps because goombating was often used as a distraction for an escape it was also just a way of killing time really it was just winding up the guards yeah badder was famous for it he has a mixed reputation as an individual i've heard plenty of reports that he was as unpopular with the british as he was with the germans but he certainly seemed to enjoy a good bit of goon baiting Mm, yeah but it wasn't just him by no means restricted to him or or individuals within the camp it seems to have been any opportunity yeah and also i I mentioned crazy week and i I just think trying to make the the germans think what on earth is going on and unsettling them Mm -hmm. must have been really good fun Mm. so if you could have imaginary dogs as some people did or some people had flies on strings attached to parts of their uniform and kind of pulled them in when they went through a door and all those kinds of things or you know that that story about when someone arrived at Colditz and a a parachute arrived with a a little mouse on it saying welcome to Colditz all of that kind of I don't know it's that paraphernalia that makes you think yeah we've actually we've set up things we've got control here and I think that must have been really unnerving if you're meant to be the Germans you're meant to be in control so any of those kind of little things that gives a a flavour to the the POW experience would have been just broken the the tedium of the day well I mean I saw in the photo section of your of your book a fabulous photo of somebody who seemed to have built themselves a model boat Uh, and you know I mean that is quite an extravagant 
toy nowadays. Yeah. You, you know, if you're going to go and enjoy it, but to be in a prisoner camp and actually have created something as fabulous as that would yeah. be a little bit like home from home. Well, and again, that would have been on the the big bit of water they had there in case there was a fire. So that was the bit that they would have played ice hockey on as well. Um, they made incredible things uh, again from the Red Cross parcels, and it's you know you've got that's one thing you've got time on your hands, so you can really try out anything. Terry Frost, who later became Sir Terry Frost, the famous abstract artist, discovered he could paint when he was inside and had his first exhibition when he was inside. So that really changed his life. He came from quite a humble Midlands background, and it transformed what he did with the rest of his life. Wow, I mean, because in the great scheme of things, quite a lot of these people statistically were young men. We've looked at some prisoners who were much older in their 40s and 50s but predominantly these were young men who had just been through the education system they're in this massive pressure pot of stress and yet they've got this creative flair to do things and as you say it was life-changing and we've seen examples of people who went on to do completely different things after the war but predominantly then people would have used this opportunity to look at their lives and where they were going to go with it or, yeah, or you, you said they'd been through the educational system. Well, they, they might not have been, or they might have left school at quite an early age. And yeah, that's why I called the book The Barbed Wire University, because it was a chance to mix with people who had completely different experiences. You could learn a language, you could sit exams, you could bird watch, which lots of officers did, and it could really change the direction of your life if you got out at the end of it. Wow, great title then. I mean, I think it's absolutely superb, but is this predominantly in Europe, or you know, did this spread out? We obviously know about the, the, the Japanese camp system from the Bridge on the River Kwai. I actually had a distant relative that was in a uh, in a Japanese prisoner war camp, and that was obviously a very different experience for. Well, when I started, I thought I'm not going to include Far East PRW, so FIPOs as they're called, because things were so harsh in that theatre of war. But I ended up writing and researching a huge amount because I was amazed, amazed by the ingenuity, despite the fact that they didn't have Red Cross parcels, or very rarely did they have Red Cross parcels. Mm. A lot of them were forced into labour. You mentioned the Burma Thai Railway, they suffered from awful tropical illnesses. And and yet they were doing amazing things with bamboo, creating artificial limbs with bamboo shoes so that they didn't get ulcers. They were building dentist chairs, having amazing, you know, really complex operations in the jungle. And I ended up talking to and interviewing quite a few Far East POWs. I interviewed an amazing man called Fergus Ancorn, who was a magician. And so he used to do tricks to extend the rest period when he was working on the Burma Thai Railway. And he would always ask to do tricks with food because then the guards would say, you've touched that, I don't want that back. And he was a most amazing person. And he would uh, manage to send some letters back to his parents. But he did it, he did used um, shorthand. So they had a, just a kind of very basic form of, you know, I'm well, I'm sick. And he incorporated bits into it to let his mum know where he was and that he was well, which is just astonishing. There was also an officer called Frank Bell who uh, set up a language school in a POW camp and he went on to set up an international language school after the, the war, which was incredibly successful. And it was amazing what people did. So I was absolutely stunned by what went on in the Far East and ended up writing a lot more than I thought I would. Yeah, I think we, as an escape-focused podcast, tend to focus, for fairly ob obvious reasons, on the European theatre. The vast majority of escapes took place 
in the European theatre for, quite frankly, not much more complex reasons than they were close to home and it was far easier for a Western white male to amalgamate into France, Germany, Italian, Polish populations than a Western white male in the Burmese jungle or the general Far East. So there were very few escapes. Yeah, like you said. Yeah, where could you escape to? You would have stood out a mile. You didn't have the energy to. You didn't have those kind of networks that were in occupied Europe. So Mm. it it just wasn't feasible, really. So a knowledge of the language was often far, yes, and far greater distances to cover. I mean, yeah, where would you go? No, I was just going to say. I think that it's even more important how they escaped mentally in the Far East. So they did have all the entertainments that we've talked about Mm. in Europe. So they put on amazing shows. Lots of people in drag. They had a famous cricketer who would give accounts of famous matches he'd watched. They did so many things just to take them out of their horrible circumstances Mm -hmm. just for a matter of hours. Yeah, when you talk about escaping mentally as well, I I was fortunate enough to go out to Colditz about 10 years ago now, actually. And I went down into the French Tunnel. When I went, I was probably fairly naive. I went out there thinking that a lot of the escape activities was to give them something to do, something to focus on, something to concentrate concentrate on it was only when we were in the bottom of the French tunnel and you realize that these young guys who were younger than I was then had cut through the bedrock of this castle with knives and forks and you start to think my word that's not necessarily a distraction to give you something to think about that was a desperation Mm. to get out so mentally the stresses must have affected these people massively and did did you pick up on anything from the prisoner of wars that you interviewed later on were there still scars that went fairly deep oh absolutely and my mum used to say that dad had terrible nightmares for several years afterwards and would wake up with his pyjamas soaked in sweat. And of course, we, we didn't have knowledge of post-traumatic stress disorder then. And my dad used to laugh at it when people talked about it, but I'm sure he suffered from it as many people did. And it's particularly true of the Far East and how people tried to cope with that at a time when we'd moved on really. And there was a lot of resentment that people didn't want to talk about the, the war in the East and had couldn't really understand it as well, because it's it, at that time it was be, kind of beyond imagination what they went through. There a lot of mental illnesses around food and eating as well because that was so scarce and a lot of trauma that has been passed on to relatives of Far East POWs as well. Which that then leads me on then. So the integration of prisoners when they came back, we know there were people who spent the entire war in captivity. For example, when your father came back or any any of the people that you interviewed came back, how did they find to integrate back into family life? Because I guess in a lot of cases, some might have had children that were, you know, the, the wives were pregnant when they left and they had children that they were four or five years old that they'd never seen or met. I mean, yeah. Whilst their prison experience could have been potentially life-changing for the rest of their life, life had changed whilst they had also been away and therefore integrating back into that must have been quite something. Yeah, there's some really good books on this, actually. So One Stranger in the House by Julie Summers. It's about that very subject. And in a sense, those who came back from Asia Pacific found it in some ways easier to get used to being back home because they had a long journey on a ship during which time they could hear a woman's voice again which they might not have heard for years they would have got up to speed with what was happening politically they would have had some chance to adapt slightly before they got back to Britain whereas if you're coming from Europe it all happened generally much faster being demobbed and there was no sense of helping people to to readjust into society and if you had children they might not have seen you for years and had been just used to a head and shoulders 
father's photo on the piano or the mantelpiece and then daddy comes home and he looks quite different and he he's changed physically and he's not the man you're expecting to see from the photo and why is mum paying attention to him and that's very difficult in its own way and you know that the father perhaps doesn't agree with the way the mother has been bringing up the child she thinks she's had a tough time and all sorts of you know really difficult things to cope with so the husbands and boyfriends that are gone would have changed and life would have been probably as challenging coming home as they'd found it in captivity yes and you know things you've missed like you major life events so you might have missed someone dying or someone getting married or you know my dad actually went back and found my mum and said you know I got this dear John letter how about it and they got together and the the woman who wanted to marry him initially said she'd made a terrible mistake at which point my mother stepped in so all those things you've got to kind of readjust to and thinking everything's going to be wonderful but they're still rationing for quite a long time and you know the the world's not the kind of maybe wonderful place that you dreamt it might be yeah and trying to to fit into that and your own experience of the war which might have been very different you know in a way you might have been quite safe in a POW camp whereas perhaps your wife has been suffering the blitz and had seen some terrible things so it's a kind of often a mismatch of experiences that have to be talked about or not talked about and of course particularly for that time potentially pre-war the wives and girlfriends wouldn't have worked other than maybe in a typing pool and potentially you'd have come back and found that now they're building aeroplanes and tanks and certified welder and a foreman and yeah. you know qualified and working which was obviously something that's potentially of that time as a family unit wasn't something that people had experienced so it was a generational change potentially yeah no I mean my mum <laughs> she had a great war actually because she was always going to Scots Guards dances and she had uh, she worked for the Ministry of Supply and she loved that and that gave her a real ten- sense of independence and earning money and she wanted to do that for the rest of her life my dad kind of grudgingly said well all right but I think I should be the breadwinner here and she said no I'm going out to work because I always really enjoyed it I can see the pride on your face actually that's great you know we've looked at prisoner war camp system we've looked at hour by hour almost like life as a prisoner war we've looked at the recreational side of things sport theater music study letters to and from home the influence of the red cross parcel and of course returning home as well but all of these things and much more covered in your book the Barbara University and I'd love to hear about the experience of actually writing and you know researching it looking into these stories and how it was you you pulled it all together yeah well it ended up being much longer than I was meant to be but there was just you know so many fantastic stories and I was just kind of blown away by that the men I felt I'd got to know really well and I think it gave me an insight into my dad I mean you never know what your dad was like before you met him but I think it gave me a sense of how he could never settle really he was always kind of he had so many different jobs but he also had a sense of he was very very optimistic and I think that maybe came out of being in the POW camp because you had to be it helped to be optimistic so he always felt the thought the the best of people and would always kind of promote them so I think I found that really interesting and I just met some amazing people as well so and it made me think that how important communication is I was I gave a talk at a primary school and I was trying to explain to them you know what if you don't have your mobile phone and you can't text 
affects people and you've got to just rely on a letter arriving or wonder what people are up to and you you can't have sweets the whole time you have to wait for special treats and you can see them thinking i just can't believe this Mm. it it also made me think that it sounds a cliche but we need to remember how lucky we are Mm -hmm. so when i was writing it occasionally i'd be trying to finish my thousand words a day and i'd think i'm starving and then i'd think no i'm not starving (laughs) i don't know what starving is Mm. and that you know there was one pw actually in the far east who got hold of a gray's anatomy and he got the the japanese to stamp it so that he could have it and he memorized it because he didn't want to waste his time and he was a doctor and became a doctor for the rest of his life and fergus ancorn the magician was amazing because i took my little very subtle tape recorder along with me and i remember thinking i must remember to take that back with me and he was playing with it on the armchair and then it disappeared it was amazing and he said oh i suppose you want that back again and it came back again and i took him out for lunch and he could throw his voice so he made the bread rolls squeak the waitress just couldn't cope with what was going on and he wasn't at all bitter which was amazing as well he said that he always had this goes back to escapes he said he always had several compasses around the house and in the car because he always wanted to be able to know where he was and if he got into a tight spot to be able to get out again so it's those kind of tiny things that really shape the rest of your life so it was interesting I did German A level and my dad was really proud of the fact and but I already knew some German beforehand so I knew Rouse um, <laughs> Brot um, and what else so he would get me out of bed by saying Rouse what did my dad <laughs> yeah he, he, Rouse or Schnell yeah, yeah yeah and I remembered I had a lovely German pen friend and when she found out what had happened to my dad she was really embarrassed but they got on so well mm. And then my dad, at a certain point in his life, said, we've got to go back to Germany. So we went back to Germany Mm -hmm. and we met a very nice German couple. And they said to my dad, so is this your first time in Germany? And he said, yeah. And that's the only time I've heard my dad lie. So how did you go about choosing which stories to include and which individuals to include? Because we have round about 12 to 1300 escape reports. So we've got a while to go. But it's actually quite hard to know which ones to pick and which ones to not because they're all valid. Yeah. You know, they're all legitimate stories. They've all got interesting angles. As much as there's a lot of overlap between escapes, one tunnel is much like another tunnel in many ways, but equally the experience of digging it might be very different. Not all of them were as sophisticated as the tunnel and the Great Escape. I find it quite hard to know which ones to pick. And so I imagine it must have been quite the same because you must have come across hundreds, if not thousands, of individuals and stories in your research. Yeah, I think, well, a long time ago, I used to be a journalist. So I'm always thinking, what's the best story? What would I want to read? Mm -hmm. And why am I putting it in? You need to leave an awful lot out. I think a good test is, do you want to run home and and tell your Mm -hmm. wife or your husband what you've just heard? And they probably know how obsessed you all are with escape. So if you can think this is really different and where's the human interest in it? Mm -hmm. Or is this just another escape story? What's different about it? Mm -hmm. So with me, I was always looking for creativity and something that changed people was different from what the cliche was of what it was like to be a POW. Yeah, I mean, we've touched on things about it being a particular individual, not necessarily troublesome, but, you know, somebody who needed to be in control, I mm. think, which is what drove them to escape or get out or, or flourish even in this. And and there are thousands of stories, literally thousands of stories, and some that are incredibly well known. And hopefully through this, 
we can get some of those ones that are less well known mm. out there because I think statistically, Dave, you looked into this a lot, didn't you, with regards to most of the stories that are published are, I believe, officer stories. Yeah. But actually, statistically, the the spread of those that escaped was quite different. Yeah, so officers only made up certainly less than half, but roughly around about 800 junior ranks to mm. about 400 officers escaped. So they make up about a third of the overall successful escapers. And yet the vast majority of, of post-war escape books, narratives, however you want to describe it, are from officers. You know? Yeah. I can rattle them off. Pat Reed, Airy Neve, Eric Williams, Michael Duncan. You know, they are certainly the most well-known. Mm. Don't get me wrong, there are some junior ranks who did go on to write about it. Jack Byrne of the SAS. It's, n- it's not unknown that it happened, but the, I think it's fair to say that the officers vastly outranked the junior ranks in terms of who created and directed and sculpted, if you like, the post-war narrative of escape, certainly, but also prisoner war life and the perception of prisoner war life. One question I have is, you know, what what is it you think they were trying to escape from? Well, I think probably a lot of people felt that it was their duty to escape, but also maybe it just gave them something to work to. You know, it occupies your every waking minute. How are you going to do it? What do you need? When's the best time to do it? And then if it fails, you just start again. So it's almost like an occupation, isn't it? And you feel that you're doing something that's worthwhile. So we have obviously covered the fact that you've got a lot of people in a camp and they're forming bonds and everything else but was there romance particularly at that time i mean it's a very difficult time for that thing to come up but i mean you're going to put several thousand people together for several years did you come across anything that occurred there were a few chances for romance with the opposite sex so if you believe what sam kidd said the actor he had a bit, a bit of a fling with one of the the women who was working as a censor i think there would be nurses occasionally and eric newby who was held in italy met his future wife he wrote love and war in the apennine there was also romance occasionally between men i came across a a document that talked about the homosexual hut so there was some of that that went on also i think it wasn't just people who were homosexual but just the kind of longing for something feminine and a very masculine world so you might get a crush on someone who was playing a female part in a play but that didn't mean to say that you'd physically fallen in love with them but that was something that was missing in most POW camps, which I think is interesting and poignant. There's um, a document in the Imperial War Museum, an obviously gay lifestyle in one of the Italian camps. And it was just people were allowed to get on with it if it didn't kind of disrupt things too much. It's something that's not, not always acknowledged, I think. Well, I mean, look, this is absolutely fascinating. And this, this book you know, runs to best part of 500 pages. But, and I, I can totally recommend it to anybody. Anybody who wants to know some more about the life behind it, all the things that we've discussed this evening, you know, you could not do better than going to the Barbed Wire University. Google it, Amazon it, any bookstore that you think you can find, search for it. It's out there. It's a fantastic read. And uh, I just, I couldn't recommend it higher hugely enjoyable read I, I loved going through it and I suppose all, all that's left to be said is thank you so much for joining us it's been absolutely fantastic thank fascinating you. and thank you for asking me it's been all. great thank talking you. about it well thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed that if you'd like to subscribe we're on Apple iTunes Google Podcast or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.